What an honor and privilege to be back with you. Uh, many of you I met in Advent of 2017 when Erwin, um, my husband, and I were here before. And some of you have come to New York. Uh, please know that you are always welcome. Let us know when you're coming and we'll arrange uh, breakfast or lunch or, or something more. And so I bring you greetings from the Church of the Holy Trinity, um, your Link Parish, from the, uh, the vestry, uh, equivalent to your parish council, to all the leaders and um, all the volunteers and the parishioners. Um, um, Yvonne O'Neill is here again this Sunday, and she's a good representative of our parish. And many of you have met Joe LaPuma, who is probably the holder of most visits to St. Stephen's. <laughs> Um, all of them send you their very best today. And thank you for participating again in our, our Lenten devotional. Those of you who, who wrote entries that we are reading and praying through, and those of you who are praying alongside of us, it's, um, it's such a gift to get to know one another through uh, the thoughts and prayers that we share. And so thank you for that. And uh, we look forward on Sunday, April 7th, to doing um, a sort of Skype simulcast. Uh, we're not quite sure what we'll do, but we're calling it morning tea with our friends in London, and it'll be afternoon for you, but we'll, we'll use the internet and link up and say hello and, and, and who knows what else. We're, we're still working on that. Um, and then finally, I bring you greetings from a new friend of mine who is an old friend of St. Stephen's. Um, in New Jersey, in, in uh, the United States, there is a community of Episcopal nuns, the community of St. John Baptist. Um, I serve as their community pastor, sort of their chaplain. And um, they came from, originally, the community of St. John Baptist here in England. And the sisters of the community of St. John Baptist were initially at Clure. Some of you will know of the Clure Initiative in the Anglican Communion to raise awareness around human trafficking and, and modern slavery. That, that derives from the place Clure. Um, the sisters then moved to Hatch Lane in Windsor. And now they're just down to two, or really four sisters, but two very active. And they are at Ripon College, Cuddeston. And uh, through the sale of their former convent, uh, they were able to endow the new um, architecturally renowned chapel at Ripon College, and they're able to do creative things in ministry. One of the sisters I had known through email as Sister Mary. Well, it turns out her full monastic name is Sister Mary Stephen. Guess why the Stephen is there? It's because of this place. She was a parishioner here when Bishop Charters was the vicar. And she, uh, she began to discern a call to religious life um, from this place among this community. And many from St. Stephen's attended her ceremony of first vows. And um, so she sends her very best to those of you who may still remember her. And, and maybe uh, those are, are away, but um, perhaps you can uh, reconnect with her at, at, some, at some point. Um, she and Sister Anne are both priests. Um, their mobility is a little bit reduced, but perhaps you could get her here at some point. Um, so she sends her best, and uh, I assured her we would pray for her, Sister Mary Stephen and Sister Anne. And so, what to do with these scripture readings today? 
This is one of those days when I sort of wish I was still a Presbyterian and I could simply do away with the lectionary and pick something more pleasant to talk about. I can't quite get away with that. I have an excuse for feeling a little befuddled. I'm in another country, uh, we're leaving tonight, and so there are lots of things racing around in my head. Uh, but I think all of us probably have an excuse to feel a little fuzzy on this third Sunday in Lent. Um, if we follow the news at any level, um, who knows what to think? Who knows what to read? Who knows where to go? We walked alongside the, the enormous protest yesterday. Um, to what end, we will see. Who's to know what to do with the larger questions of the world? Um, but how interesting that people bring questions similar to ours, really, to Jesus in today's Gospel. They can sound very different, but they're actually very common. People come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's going on in a world where Pilate can simply kill the Galileans who are worshiping in the synagogue in Jerusalem? What's going on and where is God? And then as if that isn't enough of a question for Jesus, they ask him about another situation. They say, and this tower at Siloam that fell on innocent people, what sort of world is that? Where is God and why does that sort of thing happen? The questions sound contemporary, don't they? Why does a gunman let loose in a mosque of innocent people? Why should innocent people die in a cyclone in Southeast Africa? Especially the very people who are beginning to get on their feet and do amazing things. Why should children in American cities have to worry about gunfire when they go to the playground? Where is God when people in this country and my country are so divided we can't even hear each other? Where is God as hatred and xenophobia seem to be on the rise worldwide? Jesus does that annoying thing that he does so often, where he doesn't quite answer the question, and yet he answers the question at the heart of the matter. Some of these questions we live with in this life, and on the other side of this life in heaven, perhaps they're the first questions we ask God. Part of my vision of heaven is that whatever it is, wherever it is, when we get there, all of our questions are answered, and, and we wake up with a sense of, oh, so that's it. But in this world, Jesus seems to say, yes, you're right, a lot is broken. A whole lot is broken. Some things are broken for reasons we'll never know in this life. But other things are broken, political structures, countries, social orders, relationships, nations. These things are so often broken because they involve people, and people so very often are broken. And so Jesus seems to go right to the heart of the matter 
Repent, he says. He uses that old-fashioned word which can, can sound scary and can shut us down if we're not careful. But he's basically saying, change what you can. Put energy into what you can. The brokenness in yourself and the brokenness right where you are. Focus on that to start with. George Herbert, the 16th century poet, uh, has a poem entitled Repentance, using that old-fashioned word. And in his poem, Repentance, uh, it begins with a confession, kind of old-fashioned style, and then it asks for God's mercy. But then at the end of the poem, there's a wonderful kind of statement of faith. Herbert writes, God wilt sin and grief destroy, that so the broken bones may joy, and tuned together in a well-set song full of his praises who dead men raises, fractures well-cured make us more strong. I love that phrase. Fractures well-cured make us more strong. And so we don't deny our brokenness. We don't hide our wounds. Rather, we expose them to Christ's healing love. And, and through that exposure, through his love, the very fractures, the very broken things are healed and made more strong than ever. Oh, we'll break again. We'll break in other places. But then again, we turn and return to Christ's love, to, to God's heart, and we accept that healing and renewal and strengthening. This season of Lent is one in which we acknowledge that we fail and we fall. We break, and we sometimes break other people, often unintentionally, sometimes with great intention. And yet through repentance, through forgiveness, we are built up. We're made strong again. We're made stronger than before. In the first scripture lesson we heard today from Isaiah, God welcomes us. Come, you that thirst. God will always quench every thirst. Paul gets a little trickier as he's talking with the Corinthians, and he invokes a whole history that some of us would like to forget, a history of, of a sense of God's vengeance, that if we do this, God does this to get even. Um, if we step out of line, God's waiting to strike us down. That is the sort of language that Paul invokes. We need to step back just a tad and remember that Paul is making a very specific, targeted argument to the people in Corinth. We don't ignore it, we overhear it, but we also accept it for in its context. Paul moves on to a place of love, of forgiveness, of repentance. He doesn't for a second think that God is waiting just to get us. Rather, God is waiting again and again and everywhere to receive us again, like the parent in the prodigal son story. God sees us coming and just hopes we'll come closer and turn and return again to God. Jesus offers us his renewal. Jesus reminds us of repentance. As we're likely to worry about why something happens in the other part of the planet, why something happens across the street, why something keeps happening with neighbors here and there, and Jesus whispers in our ear, turn, 
Turn to me again. Turn to God again. Turn to God and have God's goodness, have God's strengthening, have God's mercy, have God's renewal. Repent, Jesus says. Stop judging other people. It's a waste of time and energy. Stop trying to figure out where you are in the pecking order of God's favor or the oppression of the world. And stop living for yourselves alone. We're asked to return and turn again, to turn to God and follow in the way that Jesus leads. Repentance can look like a lot of different things. For some, it may mean a very first turning to God. Maybe you didn't grow up around any kind of organized religious expression. Maybe you've never gotten around to being baptized or confirmed or, or saying, um, me too, I'm in. It may be that you've never really been bothered by the question of God or, or who is Jesus before, but, but recently something's shifted in your life or in the world, and so you're beginning to wonder, or, or maybe you're getting older, or maybe there are children involved. Maybe you're dealing with mortality for the first time, and so perhaps it's a good time to turn to God. Repentance might mean returning to God, Maybe one has been away for a while. It may be that the church threw you out, or you felt thrown out. But you're back, and welcome. Some years ago, the Archdiocese of New York, the Roman Catholics, had a wonderful television ad. I wish so much the Episcopal Church had made it. Um, but it showed this sort of rough-and-tumble guy who, who was clearly a, a worker of some sort, and he was standing out in front of, you know, the glorious St. Patrick's Cathedral, and the bells were ringing, and it was, it was cold outside. And this, this fellow looked in the camera, and he said, hey, if the ceiling didn't fall in when I went back, it won't when you do either. <laughs> and then the advertisement simply said, come home for Christmas. The Catholic Church, if our church could stick to that message, come home and leave it at that, the church would be full. Repentance might look a little like what so many of the saints and the holy ones have shown us, that, that repentance, turning to God, first involves a sort of turning to our own difficult places of, of family or origin or, or where we all began. And sometimes spiritual growth comes only after we've dealt with some of our own personal history of, of being honest, of speaking the truth, of laying it all on the altar of God to be transformed, to be hallowed, to be turned into an offering and a blessing. I looked in the little Lenten devotional, and I believe the thing that I wrote for next Sunday touches on the sacrament of, of confession, of, of reconciliation, of, of saying our confession with another person, often another priest. Um, that may seem foreign to you. It may seem um, extremely Catholic. Um, but it's one of the great gifts of the church, the whole church. Not so that we grovel and feel awful about ourselves, but so that we leave that conversation renewed and strengthened. Old places that were broken, finding new healing. 
I remember the first formal confession I ever made with a priest, and um, I overprepared for it. I read a couple of books about it, and I prayed about it, and I made a little retreat, and then I went to see this, this Anglican Benedictine monk to make my formal confession, and I went down my little list of sins, and one after another, he sort of looked at me and he said, that, that's, that's not a sin. That's not something you confess. Finally, we got down to something I hadn't quite really talked about, and he got into that. And it showed me that not only did I feel weighed down by what I thought was sin, but so much of what I was walking around carrying was not really my weight to bear at all. And so it took someone else who had, had gone a little further than me in prayer and holiness and in wrestling with God to be able to look me in the eye and say, no, 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 not that. Here's what you need to talk to God about and come clean about. And so I did. And, and ever since, uh, that practice of confession is, is a time of renewal. It's one of those, those times where after a, a long day of, of, of doing some sort of work where you feel sweaty and gritty and then you take a, an amazing shower and you feel new and ready to take on the world, that's what confession and absolution feels like. In today's Gospel, Jesus tells the story of a fig tree that's not producing it's not changing, it's not growing, it's not doing much of anything. The gardener in me loves this story because for years when I had a little gardening patch, if something didn't perform and bloom, out it went into the compost. I was never a patient gardener. This wonderful story has the, the person a little like I used to be. Looking at this fig tree, it's, it's not doing anything, it's not producing. The owner wants it cut down and thrown out, but the gardener, remember Jesus was mistaken for the gardener Easter morning. The gardeners are often holy people, and the gardener in this gospel is the one to know the truth. And the gardener says, just give it a little time. Just wait a tad, wait a season. Let me give it some attention, nurture it, see what happens, it may still produce. In talking about the fig tree and the gardener who waits patiently, I think Jesus is trying to understand an image of God, God who waits for us. That's what grace is really. It's, it's God's patient waiting for us to, to turn and to return in our good time. That's where our freedom comes in. When we're ready, only when we're ready, God is delighted, and God is like that parent in the story of the prodigal. There is rejoicing in heaven, for we were lost, and now we are found. We were dead, but now we live in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Some of the brokenness in our world is beyond our control, out of our range of action, and yet there is so much we can do. The other night, some of us were uh, privileged to hear Amanda Mukwashi, who is the CEO of Christian Aid, and she very gently and eloquently noted that the church, all of the church, bears responsibility for some of the world where we scratch our head and say, what's gone wrong? 
The church has schools, and so we're responsible for the way children are brought up and what they think and what they believe and how they act. The church has property, and so we're responsible for how that is open to the wounded and the weary in the world. The church has money. Believe it or not, a lot of churches have money. <laughs> and so we're responsible with how we invest it. Who do we entrust it to? Where do we risk it? And so it comes down to, we can't fix everything in the world, but the way I live affects others. The way I consume affects others. The way I invest my time, my talent, my treasure affects others. The way I notice the things around me affects other, others. The way I talk, pray, and act affects others. This is a season of repentance, of turning and returning to God through God's grace and God's love and God's eternal patience. May we learn and live into the truth of George Herbert's words that fractures well cured do indeed make us strong. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.